from my perspective, the difference between like Marxism and liberalism Mm -hmm. is the idea that others are the source of our freedom rather than the obstacle or obstruction of our freedom. Right. And that it's in our social interdependence that our possibilities of self-realization are at their greatest. And in that sense, you know, a society where everyone has the opportunity to really do some kind of meaningful work that does contribute to a public good, not necessarily in a grandiose way, right? But just like taking care of the elderly folks on their block or whatever. I think, you know, is a, that's a quite radical change actually from where we are at. And I think it's, from my perspective, it's the, it's the way to think about these kinds of questions about the future of work. We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? My guest today is Gabe Winant. Gabe is an assistant professor of U.S. history at the University of Chicago. Gabe is a historian of the social structures of inequality and modern American capitalism. Gabe published his first book recently called The Next Shift, The Fall of Manufacturing and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. So Gabe came onto my radar when I read a review of his book in the Hedgehog Review a few months ago, and his book discusses a number of issues that really interest me, including American working class, healthcare, and particularly Pittsburgh. So I I love the book, and I wanted to have a more extensive conversation with Gabe about the book, but really about all of his work and his thoughts on a, a slew of topics related to healthcare and American labor. So you'll see that Gabe and I are working from very different conceptual frameworks. Gabe describes himself as a non-believing Jewish Marxist where my interest in labor issues emerges from Catholic personalism, especially found in Dorothy Day, Jacques Maritain, Jean-Paul II. Uh, So many of our solutions and argumentation may differ, but we certainly are united in our concern for the well-being of the American working class. So I'm excited to engage in this uh, multidisciplinary conversation. So welcome to the podcast, Gabe. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about your identity as Marxist. Uh, That word does a lot of work these days, and people invoke it for all sorts of different purposes, in many cases, invoke it incorrectly. So what does it mean to you to be a Marxist in the 21st century? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. You know, I mean, Marxism means a lot of things because it's an intellectual tradition, and like any intellectual tradition, has many branches, has many internal contradictions. And, you know, those who would attempt to turn it into something more dogmatic than that, I think, serve the people who would, who would be interested in caricaturing it. <laughs> right, right. You know, for me, Marxism means a couple of things. One, a kind of fundamental intellectual order of operations. That's to say, while I don't think that we can or should read directly off of, well, let me say this, Marxists often talk about base and superstructure, right? I'm sure folks will know that kind of metaphor, right? That there's a kind of economic base, and that there is a kind of cultural or political superstructure that rises on top of it. And especially if you're thinking about how to use Marxism to analyze history or society, that metaphor will present itself to you. And I don't, for me, Marxism doesn't mean that you can read what people are doing politically or culturally or socially directly off of their positioning in the so-called economic base, but rather 
it's a kind of intellectual order of operations that there's a kind of prime mover in understanding any historical situation. Uh, you have to understand, you know, how people are making their living, what problems arise for them as they try to make their living, what larger social structures their living is kind of tied up with. So in Pittsburgh in the fifties and the steel industry was, you know, the steel market, how is it organized? And that will then give you a whole set of questions to ask next about political beliefs and ideology and culture and so on. And so it's not a question of a kind of linear determination of uh, social or political behavior or cultural, cultural meaning from an economic base, but rather a kind of procedure that we can follow. That's the primary thing I think it means. And then tacit within that is the idea of totality, which is a kind of fundamental idea in Marxist analysis, that we have to try to grasp society as a whole, mm-hmm. that it's in some way integrated whole, even if that even the parts of that whole are different from and in conflict with each other. Right. So maybe we can do a little application here. Uh, we've talked a lot about the, the question of deaths of despair. We've had a number of guests on the show that have been thinking about this, uh, this issue, particularly we know that those without college degrees are experiencing high rates of suicide, drug overdoses, alcohol abuse. And then among whites without a college degree, we've seen this decrease in life expectancy. This was um, shown by Deaton Case in their famous mm-hmm. Death to Despair book. So I've had a number of guests who really proposed a Durkheimian account of Death to Despair and basically long-term loss of social institutions and norms leading to meaninglessness and lack of purpose. And that's sort of the primary lens through which they've understood these deaths of despair. So why does that account, why is that account not convincing to you? Yeah, I think it's, it's insufficient, I guess, is how I would think of it. And there's a few reasons for that. I think the, the, for me, the key way into this problem is if you start to think about race. So as Case and Deaton are very explicit, and as you just said, right, what the, the phenomenon of deaths of despair, what makes it novel is that it's happening to white people. Mm-hmm. And right, there's in fact a long-term life expectancy difference along racial lines, yeah. going back a far ways. Famously, in fact, uh, let me invoke the Marxist geographer Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who defines race mm-hmm. as a uh, inequality in exposure to premature death. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, uh, which is a kind of interesting. We don't need to get into that, but it's an interesting definition. So, uh, I think if you start to think about that, you can then ask, well, okay, so where, what, what is it that white people are catching up to? Mm-hmm. Right, because that's that I think is actually a sort of more useful way of, of seeing it. White people are it's not a good catch up, right? But white people are catching right. up to somewhere that black people have been already for a while. And then I think the, the answer that presents itself is deindustrialization, which you know is obviously associated with the case and Deaton argument is sort of underlying it in various ways. But they, they developed this argument at the level, as you said, of sort of social institutions, this kind of Durkheimian question of social integration. And from my perspective, uh, we can see this much more clearly if we say, okay, since the mid-1950s, there's been a kind of gradual process working its way through the American working class, through mm-hmm. the American economy, eroding secure industrial employment. It really starts as soon as the Korean War is over, but it starts at the bottom, and that's where it starts to affect African Americans first and most intensely. Right. And it gradually kind of eats its way up toward the top of the working class and so increasingly affects white people by mm-hmm. the end of the 20th century. Do you think it's fair to say that the crack epidemic was the first opioid epidemic? Yes. I, I mean, I, I haven't studied that directly, but I often have that thought. And that we can see drug e- epidemics as phenomena of what Marxists call relative surplus population. That's hmm. to say, uh, population that's kind of dispensable from the point of view of capital. Yeah. Really, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, Deaton Case uh, certainly do not ignore the the economics. It seems to be that the basic argument is the the economic decline lead, leads to this sort of Durkheimian enemy, which doesn't seem totally inconsistent with what you're arguing for. 
No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, the, to, to understand it, I think you'd want to kind of try to see it in a, for, from my perspective, you'd want to see it in light of a kind of ongoing political and, you know, class struggles, basically, over the, the social wage, right? So what is the shape of the welfare state? What, is the, what are the forms of organization of the working class? How are those defeated or destroyed? Yeah. What kinds of racial differentiation plays out in those kind of political processes? And so, you know, I think that the kinds of social disconnection that are at the center of the argument, I mean, it's very difficult to contest that from my view. I just think exactly what they mean and exactly how they arise is something that we need to argue about more. Yeah, that's this is a really great point. I, that's a really interesting perspective. So one thing I like most about your book, so we'll return to your book now, were the case studies and interviews with actual people. I know that you didn't necessarily do them, but you you mined archival material. But I thought that was, I did some of them. You did some of them. Okay, so yeah. you did do some of them. So I was hoping you could tell a quick hypothetical story of a family in the Mon Valley. Uh, and for those outside of Pittsburgh, the Mon Valley is the valley around the Monongahela, Monongahela River. So I'm thinking of a man and a woman. Maybe they were born in Homestead in 1930. The husband started working at Homestead Works in 1948. They have five or six kids, as they would have at, at that time. And a couple of those children are daughters. The fact that a couple of the children are daughters is important. So maybe tell a little story about how the work prospects change for those two generations as a way to illustrate how a city like Pittsburgh transition from manufacturing to healthcare. Yeah. So this would be, I mean, I think of this basically as my grandparents' generation that you're describing. Right. Yeah. And so let's say they're born in 1930. That would be a little too young for World War II for the man. Uh, maybe he fights in Korea, but let's say he gets a job in the steel industry in the kind of military industrial boom that lasts from basically 1940 to 1955 between World War II and Korea. And his wife, you know, she probably had a job as like a waitress or something like that, you know, when she was maybe a teenager or early in their marriage. But after he's, got, you know, is uh, kind of gotten through his probation period, so to speak, at the steel mill, you know, she realizes that, they, you know, it's time to have kids. They settle down. She quits her job. And he kind of digs in for the long haul. Uh, right? This industry is unionized now as of uh, 1937. And so senior accumulating seniority is a real path to economic security, it would seem. So, you know, one point I try to make in the book is that Actually, even that economic security for that generation is not quite the kind of golden image of it we might have. Right. You know, he, a, a guy like we were describing here, he's going to be laid off for a few months every couple of years. And that's, you know, for a working class family, that's a significant economic problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, or on strike for a few months every couple of years also. So between those things, you know, they often have income shortfalls that might push the wife back into work, various things like that. But nonetheless, it's kind of, you know, it's a life and they can, they can basically make it work. However, you know, there are fewer steel workers every decade of the post-war period, uh, and that's starting already in the 50s. It's automation, it's trade competition, it's various forces. What that means is that if we fast forward from when he's gotten this job around 1950 to the 70s, when his sons are coming of age and his daughters are coming of age, and he is approaching retirement, it's much less likely that his sons are going to be able to follow in his footsteps in the way that he very likely followed in his father's footsteps. Right. And so, you know, maybe one of them gets a job in the mill, gets laid off, doesn't get called back. Maybe another never gets a job in the mill. Again, this is going to depend on race, actually, depending on if these people are white or black. Right, right. And then thinking about the daughters who probably are getting married and probably, you know, their husbands are going through a similar kind of thing, right? Some of them maybe are still going to be able to eke out these jobs, but it's getting harder and harder, less and less likely. So... Although the jobs themselves have gotten better over this period of time, right? The wages have, have, have gotten quite good. The benefits are really good. The number of people who have them 
has shrunk. Mm-hmm. And so the, o- the overall ability to kind of blanket the working class in economic security uh, is not improving in the way that just looking at wages would make you think it is. So now imagine that this older couple, reti- you know, he retires. Yeah. They're in their 60s and, or even late 50s. I mean, steel workers could often retire in their 50s. They have a lot of health problems, right? He's worked all, all these years in the steel mill. Mm-hmm. That's a hard life in various ways. They live in a very... Pl- They've both been breathing in uh, uh, coal dust for 65 years. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And just, so just epidemiologically, we kind of know that they're likely to kind of enter retirement with a higher, uh, kind of higher disease burden. Mm-hmm. You know, back a generation before, a lot of the manifestations of that would be chronic and would be easily manageable most of the time by their daughters, basically, mm-hmm. or by their daughters-in-law, or maybe nieces, you know, but by the younger generation of women in their family. Right, right. And it would be women who did that, right? And that was kind of part of how that whole household division of labor worked. But now if you think about this moment in the 70s, where the sons aren't getting the same kinds of jobs, so either the couples, you know, the sons and their wives, or the daughters and their husbands are becoming more likely to leave town, and Pittsburgh sees this huge emigration to the South and Southwest. Mm-hmm. Or if they stay in town, the daughters are more likely to enter the labor market. Yeah. And of course, the 70s and 80s and 90s, right? This is the period of very intense transformation in women's workforce participation. We think of that as feminist opportunity, and it is that uh, in many ways, but it's also economic compulsion, right? Mm-hmm. Especially the lower the class system you look. And so women are starting to enter the labor market, and that means that they're not going to be quite so available for, you know, if dad's, you know, condition is acting up or mom fell or whatever, right? Uh, they're not going to be quite so available for that in terms of the kind of everyday acute, or sorry, everyday chronic care management needs. So that then means that, uh, and this is the kind of core argument of the book, what this older couple is likely to do is use their extremely good insurance, mm-hmm. which they have from this career in the steel industry, to seek care in an institutional context. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the community hospitals of the Mon Valley yeah, every steel mill has its hospital, basically, like two blocks away. Right. Community hospitals of the Mon Valley function kind of like this combination of what we think of as hospitals being, and also kind of like nursing homes, and also kind of like social work providers, basically. Mm-hmm. They have this kind of different array of functions because people lean on them for all of these functions that the family has sort of provided before, but are being externalized out of the family. And that causes these institutions to grow really dramatically. Right. So can you explain the concepts of dualization and polarization and the impacts they have on the fortunes of American workers within the service economy? You know, as these women are, you know, leaving what was historically sort of stay-at-home mom or being a housewife, now they're entering the, the labor force, but in a very different type of industry than the steel industry. Uh, and again, so dualization and polarization, how that really shapes the current form of, of labor. Yeah. Well, I, I have to admit, I use the terms kind of, uh, I sort of use them together in the book because they mean slightly different things, but I'm not really interested in litigating which one is the right one. Right. Right. So I'll, I'll describe each of them. So polarization is a description basically of uh, something happening to workers' incomes in the labor market. Uh, that if you look at workers' incomes kind of quantitatively, you see that they're moving toward the edges of the scale right. over time. And right, that's why it's called polarization. And so, you know, in the mid-century period that we were just talking about, there were, there were more jobs, you know, often would be called like semi-skilled jobs or something like that, that uh, were in the middle and that people with some education could get and kind of build economic security around. But increasingly, there's kind of uh, so-called high-skilled jobs. And I think we can kind of 
interrogate skill here if you want right, to. Right, right, right. But the so-called high-skill jobs, uh, you know, that involve higher credentials at the top of the scale and uh, an increasing proportion of low-skill jobs that are trapped at the bottom of the scale. And that's polarization. Mm-hmm. And dualization is a kind of structural account of what's happening in the organization of the economy. Mm-hmm. And I'm drawing on in the book uh, to try to say that the economy, it's, so it's not just that the kind of distribution of jobs is changing, but the, that the actual kind of structure of where employment is found is changing. And in particular, that there's an increasing separation sectorally within the economy between uh, basically engines of growth and engines of employment. Right. And, you know, if you think about like U.S. Steel or GM earlier in the 20th century, you think of those things as going together. But that today, the firms that employ lots of people are typically uh, these kind of low-wage service sector firms, which are not really able to, for various reasons, generate a lot of productivity growth, which is like the very essence of economic growth, capitalism, right? right? Like thinking about hospitals, right? Which is what sort of what the book is about and hospital systems. You know, there's not really a way that we've figured out to, you know, replace labor with capital in hospitals, Mm -hmm. right? In a systematic way or to refine the division of labor in such a way as to uh, make the work more efficient, you know, from the perspective, from a kind of financial perspective or an right. economic perspective. And, you know, that's related, that's part of why the cost of healthcare always goes up is that, uh, you know, the hospitals seem to have, and lots of service industries seem to have these kind of intrinsic qualities that make them kind of less amenable to productivity increase right. and therefore not drivers of economic growth, even if they eat up more and more of the economy. So what I found most troubling, most compelling was just this, in, in your speaking to this, the central characteristic of, of the service industry that it takes a lot of employees, but it's very low margin, which means there's this constant pressure uh, to reduce labor costs, which puts a serious ceiling on the ability for workers to increase wages. Yeah, right. Uh, so, you know, this is a kind of core paradox that I try to get at in the book is that uh, if you think about healthcare, the at the social level, the demand for it is like bottomless, right? right. It seems like we'll just, I mean, we need a ton of it. And there's a lot of complicated reasons for that. And the book is trying to explore some of them. But for whatever reason, bracketing that for a moment, it seems like we are willing to consume an enormous amount and demand an enormous amount of care. And that drives the industry's growth. Mm-hmm which is, you know, it has grown and grown and grown. It grew right through the Great Recession, right. basically untouched by it. Yeah, It's today the largest sector of employment in the country and even bigger in places like Pittsburgh, where it's about one in five jobs, slightly less maybe. And that's at the sort of systemic level. But at the level of a given employer, what a given hospital or nursing home or home care agency is trying to figure out how to do in a kind of day-to-day way is to get their patients' needs met with as few people as possible. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of core contradiction between the employer level logic and the system level logic as employers, as you say, are doing their best to make their margins work in basically the best way or the only way often that they really have, which is by passing their costs onto workers in the form of intensification of work. Right. And we're also in this period where the most profitable companies basically employ nobody. So Google and Facebook make such tremendous profits and employ almost nobody. 
Yeah, you know, people often like you know, here. I work on Pittsburgh, and they're like, "Oh, Pittsburgh's had this amazing renaissance, right?" Because of the tech industry. And I'm like, "Yeah, that's like what a couple thousand people maybe right, are actually right. part of that." Yeah, and, and so much of the the profits get extracted out of Pittsburgh to, exactly, yeah. to San Francisco or wherever else. Yeah, and I'll probably put a pin in that because you don't want to get me started on you know transformation of the tech industry in Pittsburgh. I could take over the take over the interview. So in the interest of uh, of uh, keeping the focus on your work, we'll. Uh, We'll just move past the transformation of the Pittsburgh tech industry. So is inequality then necessarily built in to this sort of economy? And is really the only answer just major income redistribution, maybe universal basic income? Or is there something else that we could do to sort of write this sort of economy? Yeah, you know, I struggle a lot with this question because I don't want to give the impression that there's nothing we should do in the kind of near term. And I certainly think, look, unionization in the healthcare industry, it does help. And it's important. And, you know, all kinds of regulations that we could do, not just help with workers and working conditions, but simultaneously also kind of the conditions under which care is received. Mm-hmm. You know, a classic example of this would be regulating staffing hours in nursing homes, right. for example, right. which are chronically understaffed because they have any kind of acute version of the problem I was just describing. Right. And, you know, we've seen the results of that in a horrible way in the last few years. Yeah. I do think that. Ultimately, the problem lies in the distribution of care through the market, though. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's subsidized by the public and organized by the public in all kinds of ways, but it's basically distributed through the market and administered by market actors. And I think that is going to set us up for some version of this problem, inevitably, even if we can kind of ameliorate it. And that's due to the the conversation we had before, the, the interests of management are always to depress wages. Is that is that, yeah, the, is that and, issue? To prov- and to provide as little care as possible, right? Which right. is not what we want from a healthcare system or any kind of care, you know, education or long-term care or whatever. Right. So we'll turn to the healthcare system in a little bit. One thing I'm really interested in is the, how the lives of working-class women have changed uh, over this period. Again, there's been this commodification of caring labor. Those that were once family caregivers are now wage-earning caregivers to to strangers. So I'm interested to understand how the role of the stay-at-home mom or the, the role of the housewife, how it's sort of understood in, uh, within sort of a Marxist framework. So it, so I, just so you know, I, I was reading your book right next to Sally Rooney's new, new novel, and she re- refers to herself as a Marxist novelist. I don't know what that means, but I'm starting to get some sense. At the end of Beautiful World, Where Are You?, there's almost this argument for the goodness of the stay-at-home mom. Is this unique to Sally Rooney, or can there be a Marxist appreciation for the stay-at-home mother? That exists. It's, I would disagree with it, but it exists. I can give you a little sense of the landscape of these arguments. Yeah, yeah please. So, you know, I think there's a, few, there's a few different kind of Marxist traditions of analysis about the family and the home, and in particular, the figure of the wife and mother. Mm-hmm. One central debate is how to understand the relationship of housework to value accumulation. Right. Right. I mean, in the Marxist tradition, what capitalism is defined by is the production of value through labor, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can then look at the family and say, obviously, in some way, the family is connected to that process. Is the family itself producing value in some way that's only getting in the form of the husband, the available worker, let's say, right, in in this family configuration, uh, but that value only kind of gets cashed. It's sort of embodied in him him and gets cashed out when he goes to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's one tradition that kind of argues that. There's another tradition that says, uh, no, no, we don't actually have to say that value is literally being produced in the family to understand that the, the, family, the, pre, the family is still a precondition for the accumulation of capital. You have to have, in some form, you have to have some systems of what we call social reproduction, 
that's to say kind of social institutions that are able to produce and reproduce and sustain and give subsistence to mm-hmm. the working class such that it's available to be employed in the steel mill. Right. And in the latter tradition, again, this is to kind of simplify it, but in the latter tradition, which is often called social reproduction theory, there is an argument that actually, in fact, capitalism depends upon both de- or it depends upon having a kind of uncommodified exterior zone like mm-hmm. the family, right. but also constantly kind of transgresses upon it. Uh, and it has this kind of like t- contradictory dual impulse. And given that common tactic of resisting capital accumulation for workers is to defend the sanctity of the family right? and to argue that like the, the family is his own beyond commerce and that a worker should be a breadwinner should be able to support his family. And this is indeed a mainstay of, you know, socialist and working class movements all through the late 19th and mid- through the, much of the 20th century. I think if you take it beyond the kind of analytical the analytical account I just gave to a kind of defense of the single breadwinner family, it departs from Marxism and becomes closer to a kind of Christian democratic tradition right. or, you know, there are various strands of kind of conservative social democracy in different ways. Right. Obviously, there are kind of blurry boundaries here. But, you know, the question of, the, I guess, the boundary of commodification, I think, is the key thing to think about. This is a question for later, but since you brought it up, how would you relate Marxism to Christian social Democrats. Uh, sometimes people refer to themselves as, as um, democratic socialists, and I have a really hard time distinguishing that from, you know, good old-fashioned liberal Democrats, right? Yeah. So how would you differentiate sort of your, your, your Marxist worldview from, in many ways, like a, the Catholic social teaching would end up in many of the same sorts of policy solutions that a Marxist would, but of course, there's a difference understanding of religion and family. So how would you relate those two movements? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a really important question, and it's one I struggle with, to be honest about, um, because I, th- I think you're right that in the everyday question of, like, who are we going to vote for, you know, what kinds of movements should we support, there's an enormous amount of overlap that's, I think, good from, you know, from the perspective of a kind of Marxian socialist like myself. You know, I'm glad to have allies like I think you are. Yeah. And happy, you know, I, I think of someone like Dorothy Day with like an enormous amount of admiration. Right. I think, you know, probably uh, on both sides, it makes sense to see that as an alliance rather than a merger. Right, right, right. Because I think it postpones, you know, it postpones questions that we don't need to answer now, but that I think from Marxist perspective, I mean, you know, Marx described his project as the ruthless criticism of everything that exists. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> From a Marxist perspective, I mean, I'll say, you know, not all Marxists or even most Marxists would say this, but I would say that it's difficult for me to see how one would uproot capitalism and, you know, fundamental kind of distorting and harmful effects it has on human beings Mm -hmm. without making the family into an entirely different kind of institution in some way, such that I think even people who describe the concept of family abolition I, I feel like that, yeah, that, I mean, I, you know, it's not that I think that mothers and fathers shouldn't get to see children or something like that. Right. That I think, we, you know, when we're, what we're really talking about is a much, is a very far reaching transformation in terms of human responsibility for one another right. uh, that goes beyond kin relations. And also, I think even more strongly than the family question, because, you know, I think people who love one another should get to organize themselves however they want. But I also think, uh, you know, the, the kind of far, far-reaching transformation that Marxism ultimately posits does imply the, the, not just the kind of change, but the destruction of gender as we know it. Right. And, or its abolition as we know it. And that, I think, is a scary and exciting prospect from a Marxist perspective and probably not from a kind of Catholic social democratic one. No, I think that's, I think that's fair. And I, I, you know, I actually just taught this afternoon on 
in my, I have a class called Health Policy and Human Flourishing. I did a whole thing on post-liberalism. And I think one uniting factor between Marxism and Catholic social teaching uh, is a commitment to the good, <laughs> above right, right, uh, in turning liberalism on its head. But uh, when we get down to questions of what is the good, that's when the real um, battle begins. Totally. But again, I think that we can agree on a number of things in, uh, in terms of unionization and uh, economic justice and, and those sorts of questions. Yeah, I, I like to think of it as like we can tease each other for now. We can figure <laughs> out right. if we have to have it out later. That's right. You know, well, you know uh, <laughs> although if you ask a lot of uh, Catholics in, in Poland in, in uh, 1955, I think they get a little nervous about this teasing. I'm sure that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So returning to the question of uh, the housewife, who is more exploited, the mother who's the family caregiver or the daughter who is now a wage-earning professional caregiver? Who's more exploited? I don't think it's a question of more in a kind of quantitative way, but I think the mechanisms of exploitation are different. Right. You know, I think the mother who's a family caregiver, so the second chapter of the book is really about that figure, right? It's about what's involved in kind of making a family from the right. perspective of a housewife and a mother. Uh, in, a, in the kind of working class world of Pittsburgh. Uh, and the main thing I'm trying to show there is that it's not to kind of debunk that, you know, these were relationships of love and care right. and that they meant an enormous amount of people to people. And, you know, I, I think I take great pains to try to, show, you know, affirm that they did. But to show that work that means a lot to you or relationships that mean a lot to you, that, that doesn't make them not exploitative or, uh, you know, or make them doesn't make them not work in some way. Yeah. And... You know, those things are just sort of incommensurable with one another. And, you know, I think people do just underestimate, because uh, there's a kind of nostalgic glow about it. I think people just do underestimate how intense and often hard it was to be a, uh, you know, a working class housewife in, a, right. in an environment like that. I always think about, you know, there's a, there's a diary that I, I, I got a hold of, of of such a person. And, you know, I always think about the entries that she, she, every day in her diary, she just kept an entry, basically like the work around the house that she did that day. Mm -hmm. And I always think about the entries where she's describing doing the laundry uh, between like one and two in the morning, because that's the only time when no one is making any demands on her. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, I, uh, that's not to say that the process of that labor or parts of that labor being absorbed into the market is a straightforward process of liberation either, mm -hmm. um, which I think a kind of liberal feminism has historically argued, right? That right. the home is a, is a kind of a, a a uh, you know space of exploitation or or imprisonment in some form, and therefore the solution to it is let women out of the home to work like men, and then the kind of scales will even. Right. Yeah. But Wendell Berry refers to it as uh, being liberated to now be enslaved in the highest paying prison. Right. Yeah. I mean, so you know, obviously that, as I said earlier, that's a kind of process of economic compulsion as much as it's any, or more than it's anything else. I think right. often. Right. And brings with it a whole set of exploitative dimensions, some of which are parallel to or even kind of continuous with and built upon the structures of exploitation of wives and mothers. I mean, right. I think that's important to say that it's because this work is like wife and motherhood uh, in part, that it, that it has many of the, it, like in a hospital or a nursing home, that it has some of the exploitative dimensions that it has, but it also has new things, right? It has new qualities. You know, I think from my perspective, the question is not which is worse, but rather what possibilities are embedded in each. You know, and this is, again, a kind of Marxist move, right, is to say that uh, the point isn't to arrive at a moral judgment, but to arrive at a kind of historical, to uh, analysis of historical possibility that is opened up by any development. And so I think one thing that is enabled by the absorption of women and their work into these kind of caring industries is 
what Marxists would call the socialization of labor, right? right? That's to say people come to know each other, they come to work together, to depend upon each other. And out of that is the possibility of political power. So one critique that's always been internal to me uh, in regards to Marxism is I often feel the causal model is insufficient and a little weak, right? So when I think about the 1950s housewife, there has to be an account of love, right? And you, and you mentioned that yourself, but it seems as though the causal model within Marxism is, is, is so overdetermined by class that we lose some of the other causal mechanisms that would motivate a woman in 1955 to be to be at home with her family. And I'm wondering, does love factor in to the Marxist analysis or is that just something that other people think about? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, there's not really a Marxist theory of love, but <laughs> right. I think, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with a social world where love seems like it is present, you should, I mean, I think, as I said, Marxism is a theory of totality. Mm-hmm. And as I think about it, what that means is that we can look at any area of social activity and social life and try to understand its uh, both its specificity and its kind of particularity, and also the way it's linked up to larger social structures, mm-hmm. without like despoiling the specificities of it. Right. And I guess that's how I try to think of love in the in this particular context that we're talking about is something that, and that's what that's what I mean when I say it's not it's not to dismiss it to say that it exists alongside and imbued within kind of ex- exploitation and overwork and exhaustion and even fear. Right. I mean, lots of women fear and love their husbands. And right. that's a very normal thing, actually. Yeah. I think a lot uh, of uh, men fear and love their wives. Totally. As well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, another really important part of the book is uh, the description that you give to the changing demographics of American labor. What was historically white men is now primarily African-Americans and women and also primarily African-American women, which is different than African-Americans and women, as, as you um, as you have argued. So. What do we do with all these men that haven't gone to college? Can we make these healthcare jobs appealing to them? Or should we just ask them to change their feelings about women's work? Or what are the possibilities for working class men? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I'll say, you know, this is to go beyond the book, but more speculatively. I mean, I would like to live in a world where we were responsible for one another's care mm-hmm. in a much more kind of deep and rich way. And, you know, that, that sounds abstract, but if you just like think about the block you live on, right, you kind of know probably who are the kids on the block you live on, who are the old folks. There's probably someone whose sidewalk you shovel when it snows because they can't do it. It's mm-hmm. probably someone who you maybe like watch their kids for them. If you think about those kind of relationships that we have already, right, deepening those in a kind of systematic way uh, or a much more intense way, let's say, such that we just are more responsible for one another, and that's that's something that our society rewards in a kind of systematic way. I think that's impossible to achieve that vision if men aren't part of it. Right. And, you know, between here and there, I think, I mean, that's a kind of utopian vision of it, right? But between here and there, I think it's difficult to say in many ways what the steps are. You know, I mean, if nursing assistant jobs pay $25 an hour, would men do them? I don't know. I think it would be worth finding out. Right, right. But I also think this goes to our discussion about the family because, and, or about, like, you know, the Marxist understanding of gender. Because if that world where we all take care of each other requires men to participate in it, and men right now are unlikely to participate in a lot of elements of that, then I do think we also probably have to change what it means to be a man sure. in some way. And, and, you know, again, that's a kind of exciting prospect. And, what, but, and I think it's one that we can only really get leverage on if we imagine what the economic structures of gender are. 
So how do you respond to then this critique of inherent sex differences in terms of employment where, you know, you have the, the men doing thing things and women doing people things? Is that rejected out of hand or it, does that factor in some way in, in the way that we organize labor? I mean, I would reject it out of hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I just I, I find it very hard to see any real meaningful basis for that right. in the constant flux of the division of labor in right. human society in terms of. It's true that women historically, right, have always had to do more people things. Right. But women have also always done many thing things. Right, right. And we also have many examples of men doing people things, such that it seems to me that we really have much less basis than a kind of common stereotype would, would lead us to think about any intrinsic, you know, intrinsic capacities. Yeah. So here's a question. So... When we think about the the 1950s breadwinner model, where it's typically a white man uh, bringing income in for the family, it was it's often referred to as patriarchal and racist. Mm-hmm. Now we have a labor system that is primarily black and female. What do we call it now? Is do we do we rethink that sort of question of racism and patriarchy? How do you then think? Yeah, uh, you, you get the question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the structure of society is patriarchal and racist, and then that get but like that's a kind of at a pretty general level, and then particular institutions, family, employment, take particular shapes within that, which are shaped by that, but need to be uh, examined as they are. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it seems, or in, in their specificity. And so it seems to me that, uh, you know, the structure, when I call, which the book does call, the, you know, the 1950s nuclear family structure patriarchal and racist, and I yeah. think it's a very, very easy position to defend, to be honest. I mean, it depended on you know, structural privilege for men and for white people in how well the welfare state was organized, who got which kinds of benefits. It was basically compulsory for women to marry men if they wanted access to the best kinds of social benefits, on and on like this, right? Sure. So now, if we want to think about institutions at the kind of bottom end of the labor market that depend on the exploitation of women and African-Americans and African-American women, as you said, in other places, we would talk about immigrants also there, Mm -hmm. not really so much in Pittsburgh, then... I think those institutions also are in different but related ways, patriarchal and racist, or rather are embodiments Mm -hmm. of patriarchal and racist institutions Mm -hmm. that have had to get reorganized in how they work since deindustrialization, and so are embodying uh, those kind of larger structures of hierarchy in different fashions, but the structures of hierarchy at some high level are continuous. What if by some stroke of regulatory change, these become very good jobs? right? They pay well and they're very stable. Would that, would that compel us to rethink how we sort of understood how, how race and gender played out in this particular context? Is it just that they're sort of bad jobs and therefore they're sort of perpetuating racism and patriarchy or? Well, it's, it's their bad jobs. And it's a question of why they're bad jobs, right? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of different layers to that. There's a kind of economic layer, which we talked about earlier. Right, right. You know, there's a kind of institutional history of these kinds of jobs. So healthcare to you know, stick with our example, was not protected by labor law until the 1970s. Right. By which time, I mean, I argue in the book, by which time it was sort of too late, even when you could organize a union, to really change the structure of things. Right. And, you know, there's even a kind of cultural dimension to this, which I think is less decisive, but I think matters some, right, in terms of how people think about these jobs and talk about these kinds of jobs and whose job it is to do them uh, and what you're entitled to from a, from a nurse or nursing assistant and so on. And... You know, I think ultimately all of this is like all of these kind of layers of action where that embody like race and gender in different kinds of ways to give the healthcare industry the shape that it is. 
that it has and the jobs within it, the shape that they have, which is why such a like magic stroke couldn't happen. Right, but, right, right. <laughs> but if, if such a magic stroke somehow did happen anyway, just to entertain the hypothetical, yeah, I think what you would then find would be that the whole that would require the whole meaning of what these jobs were and who held them and the place that they have in our culture uh, would start to change, right? And men would start to do them, and they, you know, they, it would t- probably take on like a more scientific and a less right. kind of like altruistic kind of understanding of what it means to be a nurse. Right. And, you know, that's actually, I think, a good little example of a, how a Marxist analysis kind of works, right? right, right. To say you couldn't change that economic dimension without having it ramify upward through right. yeah. uh, culture and ideology and these things. Yeah, that's really interesting. This actually leads into my next set of questions uh, perfectly. So, you know, I'm in nursing school. I actually, I, I'm in a nursing school. That's my um, academic appointment. I actually am a nurse. I haven't practiced really ever, but my wife is a nurse. So we have these conversations quite a bit about the, the nature of nursing and labor. So do you consider nursing to be a working class job? Uh, it's a fantastic question. It's such a vexed question. And I can't give you a satisfying answer, but... I'll give it a shot. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, there's this... Let me, let me go back to basics. There's a kind of problem in Marxism going back now over 100 years of what to make of the middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been, you know, thousands of books written from this perspective about trying to resolve this question. I don't need to get... I won't go too deep into the details of it. But it's a kind of one of the kind of classic critiques and problems in Marxist theory is Marx at moments seems to predict the polarization of society into two classes, but we know that there's a thing in the middle. And so how do we understand that? What defines it? And in you know the 19th century, what defined the middle class was small property, mm-hmm. right? People who owned workshops were artisans, small farmers, shopkeepers, this kind of thing. That, that middle class was kind of ground into dust by industrial capitalism. Right, right. At the beginning of the 20th century, the new institutions of industrial capitalism, the industrial corporation, the research university, the large government institution, the public schools, the universal public school system, begin to give rise to a new middle class, which is defined not by property, but by credential. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, professionals, basically. And is, on the one hand, employed like for wages in the way that working class people are, right? But on the other hand, right, with all the vulnerabilities or many of the vulnerabilities that come from that, yeah. on the other hand, seems to have kind of higher social status uh, and is often involved in kind of regulating or controlling the lives of working class people. Right, right. Think about like a social worker, for example, mm-hmm. or, a, or a foreman in a, in a, in a workplace. So uh, I think nurses, you can kind of see within that analysis as having this kind of contradictory place where they're both kind of in the working class and kind of in the middle class, or kind of not in it, and kind of in the middle class. And, you know, thinking about, like, nurses I know and nurses in the book, it seems to me that nurses very, like RNs very often, uh, you know, who often, you know, have degrees and have, often make six figures, like, they are very frequently the kind of peak of their own family's social or class system. Yeah, for sure. Like, they're the success story of their extended family, right? They're the person who managed to get, get a, a good amount of school, get a really good job. They often support a larger system around themselves, like, not just their kids, but maybe, like, you know, it's not uncommon. I know lots of nurses who, you know, after the, the foreclosure crisis, had people move in with them because they were able to keep their homes, things like that. Right, right. And so, again, that's that kind of blurry boundary, right, where they're kind of we can distinguish them analytically in some ways from a kind of more classic working class, but they're also obviously socially connected to it. Mm-hmm. And also as any nurse right now will tell you subject to tons of the same forces that working class people are subject to all the time, such as 
understaffing and speed up, right? Which yeah, like right. every nurse is being driven insane by right now. Right, right. And you know, it's interesting, a lot of these, uh, uh, the labor issues, the class issues that you're describing are actually playing out in nursing education. There's a big movement among deans and nursing schools to move away from associates and diploma programs and, and really encourage bachelor's programs and to move away from LPNs towards RNs. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually trying to make an argument within my own circles to say, what you're actually doing is functionally shutting off a pipeline to the working class for the working poor. And it might be good for nursing as a profession, but it's very bad for American labor. Uh, I'm interested in your, in your thoughts on on that particular issue. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a really well formulated kind of position of my own. I'm, you know, I know there's this kind of like long-term decline of LPNs in particular. And, you know, I think that, I mean, from my view, we, there should be lots more nurses, right? (laughs) The, the way that, you know, the profession is, is unsustainable for lots of people is a huge problem because it needs to grow, not shrink. Right, right. And, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not trained as a nurse. I haven't been to nursing school. So I don't have, like, an extremely clear sense of what one learns in those second two years mm-hmm. and how that division of labor works within, you know, within a hospital. But it seems to me that more avenues for more people to become nurses are unequivocally a good thing. Yeah, I, and that, that that tends to be uh, my position as well. Like I, I'm one that really values diversity and preparation. And there are some studies that show that care delivered by uh, bachelor's prepared nurses tend to produce better outcomes. But there's some methodological questions about those. But my point is always a, a very, very small but statistically significant increase in quality. I don't know if it's worth shutting off employment to, uh, to a large swath of the American public. Yeah. So – Here's one f- a question for my wife. <laughs> we had this conversation last night. So my wife believes nursing strikes are unethical given this, their special relationship with patients. Yeah. How would you respond to my wife? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I understand and respect that position. I, it does seem to me that there's no way nurses can shut down a hospital, mm-hmm. right? And it's, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm someone who supports basically all workers and all strikes all the time right. and wants them to have their maximal effect all of the time. But, uh, you know, when nurses strike, they don't shut down the hospital. What they do is they force the hospital to spend more money on travel nurses. And that's the, that's the le- mechanism of leverage by, we, by which nurses are supposed to win strikes. And, you know, that's, that's a more indirect lever, right, mm-hmm. than the factory's not running. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, from that perspective, I don't think that is unethical. I think, you know, if, if we lived in a world where there was a real possibility of nurses shutting down hospitals. I think that would be, you know, that would, that would be a major problem. Right. And, and, you know, I think here we can sort of see the middle ground when we think about teacher strikes, which drive everyone crazy because, you know, they generate childcare problems, Right. right. Uh, but they don't kill people. Mm-hmm. And so from my perspective, like you go, oh, we've got to support the teacher strike. So since nurses can't do that, you know, I mean, I think that it's not unethical from my view to try to, you know, impose these costs on hospitals as a way of getting leverage, but it raises this bigger political question, which is, is it possible for nurses to wield economic power? And if so, what does it look like? What, what mm-hmm. could it look like? And I guess my, my analysis of this is like, yeah, the travel nurse cost thing is good. It's valuable. They should, they should do that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't have the kind of dire ethical problem that shutting down a hospital would have. Right, right. But where nurses' power really can come from is not just in kind of what we would call classic like industrial confrontation, like a strike, mm-hmm. right. but in... It's, it, it has to be political in some broader way because hospitals themselves are, this is my, something in my book, it's at great pains to try to show, right? Hospitals themselves, although they're private entities, are products of public policy. Right. 
And they basically are, I think, I think we should see them not as private, but as privatized or even as kind of franchises of the public, where the public is setting the terms, is cutting the checks in various ways. And then there's private oper- private subcontractors, basically, that we call hospital administrations. Right. And so nurses, there's a ton of them. They know lots of people. Everyone loves and trusts nurses. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, I think they can potentially form a very powerful political constituency. Right. And that is, a, is another direction, I think, where nurses kind of political organization can go. Yeah, that's actually we talk about a lot is, uh, I forget the number, but one in X number of people are nurses, and every single person knows a nurse, and everybody loves a nurse. So that's actually the the nexus of our advocacy power. At least that's what I argue for in, in my in my graduate-level policy classes in the nursing school. Yeah, I, um, I I lived in Massachusetts when there was a ballot initiative for yeah, yeah. you know a staffing, like a mandatory staffing level for yeah. the hospital, so I canvassed for it. And I realized that the thing to say when I knocked on someone's door was, Hey, you know any nurses? Mm-hmm. And people are like, yeah, because everyone knows nurses, right? And I'd say, they seem kind of tired to you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> everyone would be like, God, I guess they do. Yeah. Yeah. Would you want to be in the hospital with this tired nurse? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I've noticed, and this, this flows from uh, what you said before, is that many people that I talk to who are within the healthcare system really struggle to see healthcare as a as an industry in the same way we see steel, see steel manufacturing as an industry. So it's difficult for them to see health system as the primary setting for a contemporary labor struggle. Yeah. Is that your experience? And what, what can account for this sort of disconnect? Yeah, that is my experience. And, you know, I think it comes from a couple different things which are related to each other. One is a kind of revulsion at the idea of healthcare as a site of profit making, right? right. Which is a valuable impulse and a kind of humane impulse, I think, even as, uh, you know, it can lead people to not be able to quite get what's going on if you take it too far. But, you know, it's like not supposed to be an industry. It's it's not supposed to have a market. It's not supposed to be for profit in a a basic way that even hospital administrators and insurance executives would have agreed with, you know, within my own lifetime, probably. Right, right. And... You know, that's all, I mean, that, that, that stuff has only become explicit, like, I'm 35, in the time that I've been alive. Right. So I think there's that. Then I think that there's something about the organizational structure of the healthcare industry, which is connected to the question of what, what would it mean to have a marketed life in this mm-hmm. way, or life and death. It's so fragmented, right? And uh, as I was alluding to this before, about the kind of structure of public, intense public regulation, quite a lot of public funding, third-party insurance payment private administration, the separation between the hospital and the doctor, all of that, which makes the industry so unintelligible, I think, mm-hmm. from the perspective of people who don't work in it or study it or know it really well, uh, makes it hard to grasp it as a kind of economic unit in the way that is implied when we say the healthcare industry. Because right, right. Uh, people like maybe know their doctor, right? They have their insurance company that they hate. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a hospital that they were born in. But the system of linkages that tie these things together is extremely obscure. And it's obscure for many reasons, but a fundamental one is to not too badly offend our basic revulsion at the right. idea of it being an industry. So that's hidden from us. So, you know, one thing that, that this is making me think of is if we make the system public, I don't know if these labor issues go away because, you know, the NHS, the National Health Service in England, yeah. their nurses are have a union and they're always kind of angry with labor conditions. How does that help? Yeah, uh, it, it may be in a, in a f- philosophical sense, but in a practical sense, how, do, how does that help? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, uh, I mean, one, I think it helps on the margin just in the sense of like public employees typically have more 
you know, have better working conditions than their equivalents in the private sector, not radically so right, often, right. right? But but significantly, and you know, they're they're unionized much more heavily and can get a little further through those kinds of collective actions. As, you know, in, in, you'd rather be all else equal. You'd rather kind of be working for the NHS than working for an American hospital. I think. Mm-hmm. But the problems are still there. You're right. I think the defense, and you know, that has to do with like how they're lodged within a larger capitalist society. In right, my right, right. But I think the other thing that's useful to think about here is to say the problems are still there, but they're subject in a different kind of way to democratic politics. If you ever pay attention to a British election, this blew my mind the first time I saw this, like they'll have a debate between the Labour candidate and the Tory candidate, and the Labour candidate will get up there. You know, it'll be part of their like national message is like, let's increase the NHS budget by X amount, hire 30,000 nurses and 10,000 doctors. And the Tory candidate will say, no, no, let's increase the NHS budget by slightly less, Hire twenty thousand nurses and five thousand doctors. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're arguing about. We can't do that in this country, right? Because we administer those questions through markets rather than through public policy, and so they're not subject to democratic contestation. One thing I found really interesting about an article you just put in the in the New York Times is an op-ed piece where you made an analogy between Medicare policy and industrial policy. You argued that essentially Medicare and Medicaid policy was this enormous industrial policy that we don't think of as industrial policy. How would it change practically the way we do Medicare and Medicaid if we actually thought of it as industrial policy? Yeah. I mean, it's it's exciting and kind of overwhelming to think about because it would be such a dramatic thing. So Medicare and Medicaid are just this enormous stream of revenue, right, mm-hmm. into all of our communities, all over the country. And this is the kind of thing I try to work out in the book is to show how those streams of revenue have consequences on what jobs people have, right? People work for Medicare and Medicaid, you know, mediated via the hospitals and nursing homes. And, you know, what you could do with that would be, and we can't right now, but what in principle, there's no reason you couldn't, you couldn't do would be to use those levers to compel all different kinds of changes that we thought were right, right? On hospitals, on nursing homes, on, on, on home care, whether it's, you know, the amount of time that a home care worker uh, gets this, or, or a nursing assistant in a nursing home gets to spend with someone under their care, mm-hmm. or, you know, you could set, I mean, you could just re- directly regulate wages. There's an amazing thing I'm sure you're aware of a few weeks ago where Congress was talking about capping wages mm-hmm. for nurses. The only, I mean, there's no, nobody's wages in the private sector anywhere in the country are directly regulated in this way by Congress, right? right? As right. A, as an occupational group, but they're talking about capping nurses wages. And that's the kind of thing that we can even kind of contemplate, I think, because, Actually, we have these huge streams of income yeah. going into this industry, shaping the jobs within it. And so, in fact, we could think about, okay, we don't want to cap wages. What we want to do is lift wages for people at the bottom. We want to increase staffing levels. We want to improve kind of conditions of care to make it more humane. You know, you would need to change CMS to do that, right? right. So like the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services is not set up to do that. But it's not a crazy idea to start to imagine how it could be set up to do that, especially because at the state level, Increasingly, Medicaid programs have started to take on some of those characteristics. Right. And, and what are you referring to? Well, if you think about how Medicaid, so, you know, all long-term care, that's, yeah. you know, not private pay, it's paid for by Medicaid. Right, right. Whether it's institutional or home and community-based. Mm-hmm. And Medicaid is a state federal program, so that means states administer it. And states do a bunch of interesting things as they administer it. Like they, like here in Illinois... Nursing homes have to basically simultane- do like simultaneous co- continuous reporting right. on staffing levels and hours of care per patient per staff, you know, in the, in the staffing patient, staff patient ratio, sorry. So, okay, there's an office in Springfield. 
right? That is actually monitoring working conditions. There's a Medicaid office that is monitoring working conditions right. in nursing homes. Right. Uh, and there's other examples like that that you can sort of start to think about with, with Medicaid on the state level. Yeah, yeah. Although what they're thinking about is the patient, not the labor. Right. But it's not that hard to re- reimagine that. And actually, Medicare has a really easy mechanism to, f- to fix a number of things. It's the conditions of participation for hospitals. Yeah. So every hospital has to meet some uh, benchmark, you know, in terms of their physical plant and staffing numbers. It wouldn't be all that hard for Medicare to include staffing levels in their conditions of participation. I don't know. If, right. There's not the political will, but there's the functional way to do it. Right. And there's, there's a Supreme Court decision that nobody but me cares about, but I'm sort of obsessed with called uh, yeah. Committee on Illinois Council on Long-Term Care versus Shalala. It's from 2000. And in this decision, the Supreme Court found that if CMS finds you finds a hospital or a nursing home insufficient on a, like a you know a quality inspection certification process, the institution has no right to resort to the judicial system on that finding until it has exhausted its administrative process, administrative appeals and reviews, which is a lengthy and very expensive process. And just actually means in a way that I think nobody's quite recognized that like some state capacity for forcing some of this stuff on these employers is already there. Right. Right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So are you someone who would be concerned with healthcare costs? I mean, that's at the center. I'm a health services researcher. We, We talk about cost, quality, and access. So would you be concerned about healthcare? Is that something that's important to you? You know, because a lot of the things that would be industrial policy would require a little more money or a lot more money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I go back and forth on this. You know, I think on the one hand, you know, our healthcare system is obviously like grossly inefficient. Right. And, uh, you know, costs from the perspective of the patient are like a horrific nightmare that we definitely need to be concerned about. And, you know, are like one of the major social ills of our society, I think. Mm hmm. And so, you know, I think one of the, obviously one of the attractions of socializing at the very least in health insurance is uh, that it gives you an incredibly powerful tool for dealing with those costs. That being said, I don't, I'm not that concerned about the size of healthcare in our society, like like the percentage of our GDP that it's eating up on its own terms. I think what, you know, when, when the composition of that size is like patients getting gouged and that kind of thing, then I, then we should be concerned about it. Right. But as in principle, I don't think it's bad to have a big healthcare system because as it grows, we could start to imagine how, and I think in a kind of indirect and kind of Byzantine way, this is sort of what steelworkers were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can start to imagine how it becomes a way of kind of concentrating social resources and meeting social needs on a wider and wider scale. And I think it's good for us to have social institutions that meet lots of social needs. Right, right. You know, it's interested also in, um, you know, actually my class today, I made some parallels for the students between the Gilded Age in this particular moment, at least in terms of inequality, weakness of labor, polarization, individualism, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, you know this analogy. Uh, and maybe we can conceive of health systems and universities, I might add, as uh, robber barons of the 21st century. What are the limits of that analogy? Yeah, I mean, it's a, there's good reasons for making it. I, did it. I had my first class of the quarter an hour ago, and I did that too. So there's you know, reasons we do that. It's not a crazy thing to do, but I do think there is an issue with it. And the issue is, uh, has to do with where each period, the Gilded Age and our own period, fall in the kind of overall trajectory of American capitalist development. Mm-hmm. So the Gilded Age arises in the kind of first great orgy of capital accumulation. Right, right. Right. And that's what gives rise to these robber bearers, right? My students are just reading Andrew Carnegie this week. Right. And you know, th- those guys are figuring out basically how to turn into these vast fortunes 
how to take the process of like the incorporation of the con newly conquered continent and its natural resources, its plains, its mines, lay railroads across it, dig canals through it, and turn it into cap, right? Mm -hmm. And to, like with the great inequality of that period arises from this process that I think is kind of captured in the word absorption, right? Things are being absorbed into the capitalist system, new regions, new people, new processes of production, uh, and it's expansive in that way. Our period, on the other hand, is unequal because, because it's characterized by a process of expulsion, mm. right? People who once were assigned a kind of productive role in the system are being expelled from it. And this is where we began our conversation with deaths of despair. Right. And that's, I think, a, although it's parallel, still a quite different dynamic. And the difference is that something happened in between those two, right? So you can't really repeat history because stuff happens all along the way. And you, can't, right. you can't just wind the clock. And what happened in between the two was, you know, the period of the kind of industrial capitalist golden age regulated by kind of the Keynesian welfare state, mm -hmm. which left that, which laid down various kinds of complex legacies that are still with us. And so, you know, even as the capitalist elite went on a kind of new offensive starting in the 1970s and successfully brought about a massive upward redistribution of wealth and power right, right. and gutted various institutions of social solidarity, they did so in a kind of different, in such a different historical context. I think it just means a whole different set of things about how to understand our own period of inequality and what to do about it. Would you, is the solution reabsorbing workers back into the system? Uh, you know, if, would, would you be someone who would have like a sort of a national employment policy where we have like total employment or is the solution recognize that Bezos is going to have his gazillion dollars and just tax the heck out of them and give everybody UBI? Yeah, I mean, I, this is a very familiar debate to me. And again, it's one I find hard to reconcile or hard to resolve for myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think some combination of those things is probably where I would like to go. You know, I think a world of shorter hours and less work is, I think, would, a world we want to live in. Sure. But there's always going to be, for many reasons, right, both because it's sort of more humane and gives us more time to cultivate ourselves and our relationships, mm -hmm. you know, our families, our gardens, our hobbies, right. whatever. Well, Pfeiffer says uh, leisure is the foundation of culture, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think there's also a good ecological argument to make in this vein, that like lowering the level of economic activity, if we could find <laughs> right. a way of doing it without immiserating ourselves, would right. be a good thing to do. <laughs> that being said, I think that there is always work that has to get done you know i think that like someone has to like wipe the asses of the elderly even right. in, in a communist utopia right, you know? right. and i think like a, you know i think the question from my perspective is how to relate to that as part of our freedom right as opposed to a kind of source of oppression right that it's part of our freedom that we can depend on one another mm -hmm. and that dependence takes the form of responsibility as well as you know uh getting hedonism or something like that right I mean, that is really interesting. There's this central question that sort of relates to what you're talking about of we do find a lot of our meaning from work, but that's also we realize has this downside. We get burned out and we, when, as soon as we lose our job, like life isn't worth anything anymore. But at the same time, there is some, there is something actually good about being a productive contributor to the common good that a UBI in some ways potentially undermines. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the idea and agree with the idea that you know, no, like, well, the capitalist labor markets are a kind of abstract whip over our heads, right? right. And that we, we need to, we need some way to break that whip. Right. And UBI, I appreciate it as a, as a way of imagining how to do that. Right. And, you know, I don't think that we should be subject to 
you know, immiseration if we're not willing to take whatever job is on offer and this kind of thing. Right. You know, you don't even need to be a Marxist to believe that, right? That's the basic premise of like social democracy in a yeah. pretty mainstream form. Yeah. But I also think, again, that from my perspective, the difference between like Marxism and liberalism mm-hmm. is the idea that others are the source of our freedom rather than the obstacle or obstruction of our freedom. Right. And that it's in our social interdependence that our possibilities of self-realization are at their greatest. And in that sense, you know, a society where everyone has the opportunity to really do some kind of meaningful work that does contribute to a public good, not necessarily in a grandiose way, right, but just like taking care of the elderly folks on their block or whatever. I think, you know, is a that's a quite radical change, actually, from where we are at. And I think it's from my perspective, it's it's the way to think about these kinds of questions about the future of work. Well, Gabe, I hate to tell you, you sound very much like a Catholic person list right now. Well, this is what I'm saying. We can get along in a lot of ways. I totally agree. So I do only have a few more questions, but uh, I found this one kind of interesting. Uh, I was, again, in the New York Times op-ed, uh, You, it's called Manufacturing Jobs Are Not Coming Back. However, COVID seems to be raising this important question about security of domestic supply chains. Do you think COVID at all is going to change the way that we think about, you know, outsourcing jobs and recognizing the need for a secure supply chain, is there a future in which manufacturing might get at least maybe not come back, but have a comeback? Yeah. I mean, there's all, right. There's, uh, there's a, there's some phenomenon of partial, uh, as they put it, decoupling mm-hmm. with China in particular, right. But I mean, of, of some global trade, trade and production networks that I think has already begun in some ways is likely to go further. I think there are some limits on how far that can go in terms of how global trade systems work. But I also think even if it goes, let's say, farther than I expect, right, then there are more firms starting plants in this country to produce things that hitherto we have imported. The labor market consequences are just not going to be that great. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that's bad to do or that we should, you know, it's nothing or it doesn't matter or whatever. But I just don't think that uh, we are ever going to be in a world again where capital investment in manufacturing you know, sets millions of working people in newly in motion, you know? Right. I mean, I think it's, steel is a very good way of seeing this, actually. This country makes as much steel as it did in the kind of heyday of my book, right, in terms of tonnage. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I didn't realize that. In terms of tonnage, but in terms of employment, like, very few people are involved in that, right? <laughs> right, yeah. And, you know, nonetheless, right, steel still kind of figures as one of these these trade goods that, you get heard talked about in the kind of conversation about deglobalization and decoupling and so on. And if a new steel mill were to start in, you know, some, some place in your, you know, in your, in your region, certainly your local congressman would brag about it. And if Trump were president, he would show up and this kind of thing. Right. But it's just like not that steel mill is just not going to be like Homestead Works, which employed 12,000 people right. and was one of eight institutions like it, you know, within a few, few miles. Right. So I, I want to get your take on the gig economy. Just this would be very superficial, but I, you know, I've been thinking about this a little bit. In some ways, you know, the gig economy could be good for workers. You know, they're sort of free to sell their labor when and how they choose. It's sort of like you know, journeymen, right, selling their their driving skills, I guess you could say. <laughs> but at the same time, technology can be used to more deeply manage and control workers. How do you situate the gig economy in terms of your own sort of theories of labor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, from my perspective. You know, I, I appreciate what you're saying about how there's a world where one could imagine the flexibility of the gig economy as a kind of emancipatory element. But, you know, we've seen, like, in reality, we've seen none of that side of it, basically, right. actually yeah. play out, right? <laughs> and it seems to me that 
it's very difficult to imagine a story where like the gig economy left to its own devices takes us somehow there. Right. Even though it let, maybe it lets us see that that could happen, you know, right. but like, it's not going to take us there. So, you know, my view is we should be ruthlessly regulating or, you know, basically regulatory, like destroying by means of regulation, if we can, the gig economy as it exists now. I mean, I certainly supported the proposition in California um, to, to classify, to, you know, mandate classification of, of Uber drivers and so on as statutory employees for purposes of, you know, benefit collection and unionization and so on. And I think we should do that wherever we can. We should organize these workers or these workers should organize themselves wherever they can. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think whatever emancipatory possibilities might lie within the gig economy are likely to come out of that process than anything that can happen by just letting it kind of play out. And it makes me think about how in the world do you unionize gig workers? Because at least at a, at the Homestead Works, you could walk down to the Homestead Works and the employees there they all were there. There they yeah. were. Where the gig economy, like that's the whole beauty of, well, the evil beauty yeah. is you don't know who is working for Lyft and how in the world would you ever find them to unionize them? Yeah. I mean, there are people who are working very hard on this problem, you know? Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah. And there's all kinds of things that they do. I mean, for one thing, drivers tend to have some sense of each other a little bit, not all of them, right? But especially the people who are driving more for a living, like there's a place near the airport where they all hang out, for example, right? right? Uh, And so they'll know know each other that way. And, you know, they find each other online to a significant extent. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard, I think. It's very, very hard. And, you know... There's not, not only is there not a physical location, as you're saying, but obviously there's also not in any legal sense an employer. Right. Well, Gabe, this is a lot of fun. Unfortunately, we hit the end of our time, but I want to thank you for coming and having such a fun, robust conversation. I'm, I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to do this. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. It was really nice. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.